0: I say to kids at every school I go to, it's okay not to be okay. It's just not okay to pretend you're okay. Let's all stop pretending and let's be honest. And the kids are honest with me because I'm pretty honest with them.
1: Okay, this episode's sponsor is Chelsea Green Publishing. Chelsea Green is recognized as a leading publisher of books about restorative living, Diet-focused integrative health, organic farming, homesteading, local food, and much, much more. Check out all the new recent and best-selling titles from Chelsea Green, including Understanding the Heart, Surprising Insights into the Evolutionary Origins of Heart Disease and Why It Matters by Dr. Stephen Hussey, who we had on the show recently. For more about this title and more, visit chelseagreen.com. And get this as a special bonus for all those Drew Perlman Show listeners out there. Receive 35% off. Yeah, 35% off your total order from Chelsea Green by just using the discount code POD35. That's POD35 at checkout. Welcome to the Drew Perlman Show. Think of this podcast as the antidote to the fear, the noise, and the talking heads in the news. The show features an entertaining blend of ancient wisdom, empowering ideas, and cutting edge, healthy living science to optimize your health and your life. Okay, so let's dive in and get started. Today's guest on the show is John Broderick. John is the Senior Director of Public Affairs at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health and a former Chief Justice of the New Hampshire Supreme Court. Broderick has spent the last, I think, 60-plus months traveling, as he was telling me, to over 300 schools in New England, talking to young people about the importance of realizing that mental health is not a character flaw or a weakness. It's a veritable health issue. John, welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you today.
0: No thanks, thanks, True, for having me on,
1: <laughs> John. Um, so you know, I just wanted you know, just knowing your background, looking back when you served as Chief Justice, was was mental health a topic that was discussed at all at the court or around other judges or lawyers at the time?
0: Not nearly like it is now. True to be to be candid. Uh, when I was chief, uh, I expanded the nascent uh, mental health courts. We had one or two in the state. Uh, we had some courts dealing with substance misuse. so you had nonviolent offenders who were really uh, could have really explain their criminal activity because it related to drugs or mental health, and uh, so those got expanded. And it was kind of novel at the time. They're everywhere now. But they're not really the answer, because you can't touch enough lives. And the only reason we had them is because the rest of society was not dealing with mental health, but the courts were, and the prisons are. Uh, But the vast majority of people with a mental health problem are going to school, raising a family, leading a company. Uh, The image we've had of mental health has, I think, retarded Uh, our ability to develop a mental health system, we think it's a character flaw, a personal weakness. That's the world I'm from. I'm a baby boomer, and that's the world I came from. And that's not remotely true. And so uh, the last six years now, with the help of Dartmouth Hitchcock, I have made it my life's mission to change the conversation, to educate people, to inform people, and over that time, as you mentioned, I've been to all these schools. I've talked to 90,000 young people, grades 6 through 12. And after I talk, kids line up to talk to me, not because I'm special, but because I'm vulnerable. I talk about my own family's journey in mental health years ago that I probably made worse from my own ignorance. Um, and so I see it all the time. And I know we don't have a system. I know kids are suffering. And it's just immoral to how we treat mental illness in America. And the sadness is we could deal with it. We could help people. Young people are suffering, but people of all ages have been dealing with it. But we act like it's nobody we know and nobody we see. That's mm-hmm. not true.
1: Mm. Yeah, you were just telling me the story, John, about the the private school that you went to, where that where one of the students asked a question, maybe if you want to retell that, when you were at this elite private school.
0: I hope this creates a visual for people because it stuck with me. This was about four and a half years ago. I was very new to the campaign. And this private school, which is one of the best private schools in the world, to be honest, uh, the students wanted to have a mental health awareness day. Uh, I don't know about you, Drew, but when I was in high school, I would have wanted a day at the beach. But I wouldn't have said, let's not have classes and talk about mental health. So that should tell you something. These kids are smart. They know what what they're saying and dealing with. In any event, I went and uh, I spoke to the entire student body. Wasn't sure how they would respond, but they invited me, so I went. And when I finished speaking, the senior boy who introduced me asked his classmates this question. I was shocked by the question, but I was curious how they would respond. He said, if there's anyone in this auditorium this morning who has a mental health problem or someone you love has a mental health problem, those are the only two categories, would you please stand up? And I thought, no one's going to stand up, not here, not now. After about 30 seconds, all but about 25 kids of the 600 were seated, meaning almost everyone stood up. And it was stunning. And I thought, even here, it's hiding in plain sight, people. What are we doing about it? And then after that, the the counselor at the school, who was an MD, apparently you can afford an MD as your counselor if you're in private school. And he was a very nice guy. And he came up to me and thanked me for coming. And uh, I said, Doctor, let me ask you something. What's it like here when you have to call a parent about mental health? well, John, some of the parents are okay with it, but to be honest, usually the first question I get when I make that call is, have you written anything down? Have you told anyone else? And I said, those probably aren't the answers to the questions you were hoping for. He said, no, not at all, John. And if their son or daughter had a broken leg or broken arm, they wouldn't say, have you written anything down? They would say, I hope they're getting good care. Where are they? Are they at their Mass general, where did you take them? Um, but mental health has always had that shame quotient with it. And it's just not right. Mm. It's just not right. And I see it all the time, Drew. I talk to thousands of kids who come up to me after I speak because I'm vulnerable. I tell them about the mistakes I made, what I didn't see or understand. And this generation of kids, I love them. They're the most open people, and they're the least judgmental generation of Americans in the history of our country. And so they'll share with me, the grandfather stranger they've never met, about their own struggles. And they do that because they see me as safe. They know I won't judge them or shame them or blame them. It doesn't take much, but obviously in the world they're living in, that's different. That's unusual. One little girl said to me one day at a private school. She was a freshman. She looked about six years old. So I thought, oh, my God, I must look really old. <laughs> so she stood there and she looked up at me like I was a redwood tree. And I'd give him a talk. And she said, I've never heard an adult speak like that. And I said, well, she's right. I wish my parents were like that. And I said, well, don't be too tough on your parents. I was probably just like them. I just had to make enough mistakes in life and experience it in my own family. So I see it now. And I realized that it's too easy not to talk about it. And progress never comes through silence. And so I've been devoted, with the help of Dartmouth and I couldn't do it without them. Uh, so I travel, traveled 100,000 miles the last five years. And I would do it every day, Drew. What I'm trying to say to adults is we need to stop the film. We need to see what's in it. And then we need to deal with it. There, there are no bad people in this movie, but there are a lot of multitasking, overexerted, overcompetitive people uh, who live a third of their waking hours in a virtual world. They never look up. I, I mean, it's obvious to me what's happening. It's also obvious to me what we could be doing about
1: it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, John. M- maybe for those who, who aren't familiar with your story, maybe you could go back a little bit and tell your story. And also, you know, when you made the decision that you need to speak to people about what's going on, because I know it, you know, you were, you're a busy man prior to all this, but maybe just telling a little bit about your story and when you made that decision, I need to get out there and start talking about this.
0: Yeah. Let me, let me be as brief as I can. Um, As I said, I'm a baby boomer, so my wife and I didn't know anything about mental health. No one ever talked about it growing up. And so when it entered my own house, when my two sons, 11 and 13, um, were those ages, my 13-year-old son started to have mental health problems. And he didn't see them for what they were, which makes sense. How would you know? It's just how you feel. He thought it was just him. And his. Mother and I didn't see it for what it was. And over time, it progressed, but there were always explanations for it. He was really smart, he's a great artist. So, you know, you chalk it up to childhood and adolescence. And then when my son went away to college, he started drinking, which is not unusual, but I think he had a real drinking issue, that's what we saw, his friends saw it and they were worried about it. He didn't see it, he didn't think he had a problem, Uh, graduated from college got a master's degree really smart one of the smartest people i've ever met funny just wonderful but his drinking got worse and finally we talked to the alcohol people and they said to us your son's an alcoholic judge and you and your wife better deal with that and uh so the years that followed, we tried. We went to Al-Anon meetings for family members. We persuaded my son, who didn't think he had a drinking problem, to go to alcohol rehab. And then it was like the world tour of alcohol rehab. And nothing worked. And I was on Supreme Court at the time in New Hampshire. And finally, they said, look, you and your wife have got a choice to make. You can put him out on the street, literally. Hope he hits bottom. I remember that phrase from my childhood. Uh, or you can let him stay in your house, Josh. he's going to die drinking there, not tomorrow, next year, but you can't drink like he's drinking and have a long life. And so we put him out, the hardest thing we ever did. And it was the worst thing, Drew, we ever could have done. I see that now. Anyway, we brought him home after three weeks. He was living in his car. It was a horrible time and... My younger son had gotten married, had his master's degree. You know, they were all moving ahead, but my oldest son with all his gifts wasn't. When he came home, he was drinking just as much as he had when we put him out. And I'm sure looking back, he was scared to death we'd put him out again. And he knew he couldn't go out again. So one night when he was drinking, he assaulted me. And I went to the ICU for six or eight days at a Manchester hospital. My master's educated, funny, talented son was arraigned and went to jail. And uh, I don't know how my wife dealt with that. I really don't. Anyway, after six months, I was in the hospital for quite a while. My son was sentenced to the state prison. And I hope your listeners don't have that day. I could never have happened to my family, but it was happening. And my son got to the prison. We went up to visit, and they finally said to us that day, my son was present, he had to allow the visit, your son is a great guy, the psychiatrist. said, I really like him. He's really smart and talented. But he's got really serious depression. He has panic attacks, that feeling you're about to die, and anxiety, which the psychiatrist described as virtually off the charts. So he said, we're going to try to work with him here and see if we can turn his life around. And I thought the chance of that was zero. But I knew that day when we heard that explanation that we had failed him. I should have known something about mental health. I didn't want to find out in that place. My son was there for three years. He was paroled at the end of three years. He deserved to be. My son, who was drinking every day for years, has not had a drop of alcohol in 15 years. Um, And he said, Dad, I'm not that guy anymore. I don't have that type anymore. And the Davis parole hearing, they sent a camera crew up from the Hampshire television station, and uh, they came up to us when we left the hearing, and they said, do you have anything you want to say? Mm -hmm. I said, yeah, actually, I do. We're, We're really happy my son will be returning to everyday life. But I also want to say something else. My son's not a bad person who's now suddenly a good person. He's always been a good person, he's now well. And those are very different things, by the way. And uh, I love him, and I made mistakes, I harmed him not intending to, but we feel as a family. But I didn't do anything, Drew, because I'm a baby boomer, I was hoping nobody read the paper. But I knew that wasn't true, because people would come up to me, especially the first year, and they would talk to me, and then I would tell them my son was doing better, and what we had learned, it would all open up about their mother, their father, their brother, their cousin. It was stunning to me. It was eye-opening. But I didn't do anything until six years ago, and I got involved in this campaign, the five most common signs of mental health problems. And I wouldn't have been bold enough or smart enough to do it, but somebody called me, a psychologist in Concord, New Hampshire, and asked me to co-chair the campaign. And for whatever reason, I said yes. Because I think what I learned over those intervening years is if you bury something, you bury alive, And so it was always in there, and I always wanted to do something and never knew what I should do. Anyway, for the last six years, I've spoken about 680 times in five states, sometimes beyond. Uh, it has been, and I mean this sincerely, the most important work of my entire professional life. Uh, I said to of it sounds hokey, Drew, I know, but I said I finally found my purpose in life. It is my purpose in life. And I've just hugged too many kids with wet eyes and cracking voices to realize that we're not doing this right. Mm. So my family story and my own mistakes, believe me, I'm not the hero of that story, uh, motivated me to really understand it. And this campaign, which I didn't design but joined give me an opportunity to express to you and others what I've learned. And that we can deal with it. We can treat mental health problems, but we don't have a mental health system in this country. And we never will do in my opinion, or would I have it, until people stop being ashamed, stop being afraid, and start being honest. I say to kids in every school I go to, it's okay not to be okay. It's just not okay to pretend you're okay. Let's mm-hmm. all start pretending and let's be honest. And the kids are honest with me because I'm pretty honest with them. Mm.
1: So and, and you said you've you've hugged thousands of kids. And so they really so they've really responded, John, to your message when you when you talk to them.
0: They, they do. Drew. It's really stunning to watch it. It's not about me, by the way. Uh, I know that. But it is about the message. The very first school I went to, high school, I spoke in the gymnasium at nine in the morning. And I think everyone wants to give a serious talk in a gymnasium with 40 foot ceiling, The high school kids sitting on wooden bleachers, that was my dream. So I was on a little rise around on the basketball net behind a fixed podium with a gooseneck microphone. I thought, this is not going to work. And they're probably saying, whose grandfather is this guy? And why is he bothering us? So anyway, I spoke, I gave my talk about thirty-five minutes, and then when I finished, there was dead silence. I mean, the the kids looked like they were part of an oil painting. Nobody was moving, nobody was and I thought maybe they couldn't even hear me, you know, sound system wasn't great. Or maybe they heard me and they don't care what I'm saying, maybe they don't understand what I'm saying. And the principal stood up, he got up on the little riser with me, shook my hand, dead silence. It was so embarrassing. And after about four seconds of absolute quiet, 840 kids in that gym stood up on both sides. They started applauding and whistling. They did that for almost a minute, Mm Joe. And the principal said, I am shocked by this. I said, you're shocked? (laughs) Are you kidding me? Uh, But what the kids were saying, it wasn't about me, but what they were saying is, I agree with this guy why aren't we talking about it it happens almost every time i go out and then kids will come up sometimes they're varsity athletes sometimes they're little ninth grade kids i've had kids as young as the sixth grade who have confided to me that they're going to kill themselves i mean you can't have those experiences true and think now we've got this Uh, no problem here Uh, i went to a middle school before covid spoke to 6th, 7th, and 8th grade kids, they stand up and applaud. When I was in the 6th grade, I would have said, oh, this guy is so boring. What's he bothering us for? These kids understand what I'm saying, which should be a message to everyone. And then I went to the lunchroom at their request, the principal, and 100 kids would come in every 22 minutes. Now, I'd spoken to them, but you know, I was the oldest person by five times in that lunchroom. I thought, this would be an awkward few hours. Uh, I didn't get a chance to sit down, Drew, until the fifth lunch period. Kids come up. Most of the time, kids hug me first. Imagine that. What I've said to them is, it's okay. You're okay. Not your fault. Treatment is possible. They don't hear that. What they hear is, don't talk about it. Don't let anyone else know about it. I don't want you coded. I don't want you in a special ed program. You need to be in advanced placement classes. We're not doing what we need to do. I wish Drew I had a chance to speak to every parent, not because I was smart. I wasn't. I'm the first person to acknowledge that. But I'm a lot smarter now.
1: What would John, if, if, if some of these parents were here with you, if they were here with us right now, what what would you tell them? You know, what, what What words What words might you tell them?
0: Well, the first thing I tell them is mental health issues are common. One in five adolescents, one in five, one in five adults. Second thing I tell them is mental health problems are generally very treatable. And don't be afraid to recognize that and then to seek treatment. I would also say to parents, uh, put your cell phones down shut your damn computer off in the evening for an hour nothing's that important and no one's that important by the way uh talk to your children talk to your kids Uh, find out what they're thinking be vulnerable yourself kids grow up thinking my parents were perfect that's why they're my parents so i better be perfect too and then when parents open up about their own Fears when they're in high school or during high school, or how they cut through some awkward times—it humanizes them. And so, I, I think a lot of what is responsible for social emotional development, at least in my life experience, you won't find on a tablet or a phone or a personal computer. But you will find it eyeball to eyeball. That's the world I'm from. I'd say to parents with young kids, let them go out and play in the afternoon. They're not going to be virtuosos. They're not going to be in the philharmonic orchestra. Let them grow up. (laughs) Okay, Stop shortening childhood. Stop over-organizing play. Oh, my goodness. My childhood was 12 years long. Today, if you get to seven years without being in an organized sport, a, a practice, a ballerina, I mean, let kids grow up. And it's coming from a good place. Believe me, it's not that parents aren't good parents. I don't. I don't believe that for a minute. But parents are worried that the world is more competitive, and everyone's getting ahead, and their kid needs to stay up with the pack. It's it's stunning. I give you an example. I when I got out of high school, I went to a public high school. Uh, I didn't make the National Honor Society. I came close. But I didn't make it. And my mother said to me. Oh, you'll be just fine don't worry about that today my mother'd be suing the school you know what i'm saying uh it's crazy i went to a i went to a middle school one day and i was speaking to the dean of students we didn't have a dean of students in my middle school we had a principal that was what we had but anyway the dean of students i said what's it like here academically so know, some of the parents are really over the skis on this so we just had a marching period and the mother and father came in. It's 30 grand a year to go to the school. And they put the boy's report card. He was sixth grader. They put it down on the teacher's desk. And the mother said, according to the data of students, uh, those are not my son's grades. And I said, what did the teacher say? The teacher said, no, ma'am, those are his grades. And the father said, for what we're paying here, we can't accept those grades. <laughs> and I thought, I hugged that kid. I've had that kid hundreds of times all around New England. My mother and father, had I been that boy, would have said, what could we be doing to work with him? We didn't realize he was struggling. That, that, that's a cultural change. It was the boy the other night on a podcast with Jeff Levin and I. I know Jeff was on your program. I love Jeff Levin. Mm-hmm. guys amazing. Anyway, we had a podcast a few weeks ago with three kids uh, at a very prestigious college in New England. And the junior boy said to us, uh, my father used to check my grades at school every day. They they upload them to some platform. And I was, I was so happy that they didn't have platforms when I went to school. Because when you got that 65 drew on the pop chemistry quiz you weren't ready for, they usually didn't make it home. And so uh, I'd say, I better do better in the next one so I can average out a respectable grade here. One of the young women in that school, which most parents say, I'm so proud of my daughter's at that school, she's a junior, really smart. She said that night, Every girl on this campus has an eating disorder or an exercise addiction or both. That was not my life. That's not just happening. It's happening because kids are not allowed, it's well intentioned, but the kids are not allowed to be kids. They're not allowed to find out who they are. If you get a B, you almost have to hang your head. Uh, That's what I say to parents. Take your foot off the gas. Give your kids the principles and morals you want them to grow up with. Be supportive, to be sure. uh, Engage them as often as you can, but don't micromanage their lives.
1: Mm, Well said. John, what is the uh, REACT mental health protocol? Because I know that's a big part of your work. Is that is that something that uh, you find important for people to know what that what it stands for?
0: Yes, it is. I'm going to hold up this card here, which you can see, Joe. It's a rat card. It's about eight and a half by three inches, and has five emoticon
1: faces on it. And these, you know are... what, John? This is this is just going to be audio, so we're going to you to... know <laughs> it. Is. I know. Okay, okay. I
0: want you, and I want to describe it. Okay, but it has five emoticon faces, the five most common signs of mental illness. It's not diagnostic, but it's hard to have a mental health problem and not have these. And on the back of the card is how do you react when you find it? And we've given out about 480,000 of these cards. I don't mean drop them from a helicopter. I mean, given them out. And my goal when I started was to have people take them home, put them on the refrigerator in the house and learn the signs and have that conversation that we have avoided having to. Since the earth was flat. And now my goal is to get one in every refrigerator in America um, so that people can finally talk about it. You know, it, it used to be that way uh, for cancer, certainly for breast cancer. My mother used to whisper the word cancer when I was a child. Now it seems silly. Some people weren't as brave as my mother, they wouldn't even say the word. He or she has the C word. And when I was a kid, uh, nobody other than you, Hefner, ever said the word breast publicly. No adult ever said the word breast. And people whispered the word cancer. And now we say breast cancer, like we all grew up. And women, 300,000 women last year had breast cancer. Most of those women will live a full life. It used to be that way for AIDS in the early 80s. Like, who are these horrible people? Ridiculous, but we stigmatize them and ostracize them. If I touch you, can I get AIDS? If I breathe the same oxygen? And then Magic Johnson. We love Magic Johnson. We love Larry Bird more, but we love Magic. And Magic had to step out of the NBA in 1991, and we thought he was announcing his death when he spoke at that press conference. He's still very much alive. Why? Because we all grew up, and we said, AIDS is a horrible illness. Let's see if we can find treatment. We've not had a Magic Johnson moment with mental health. It's better than it was in my childhood. There's no question about it. This generation is amazing and they want to fix it, but their kids, they don't have the power. But we do. We do. And parents need to finally embrace it. Nothing to be afraid of.
1: Mm. What do the words stand for? So, if you maybe John go through the R the for, from React the R E A C T so people know what uh, know what the the letters stand for.
0: Sure, the R stands for recognize the signs of emotional suffering. Those five signs on the back of the card. Express concern, and offer support. That's the E. The A is act now, and talk. To someone who's suffering, and also be willing to be their friend, be willing to take the journey with them. The C is care. Care enough to let them know that you're on their team and you have their back. And the T is for texting. There are certain groups that will accept text messages, provide support over the phone, or maybe now by Zoom. But what I think parents need to know is that much of what adolescents are experiencing, they never experienced. They think they did. But trust me, they didn't. Uh, Nobody over 40 grew up in a world where you're online 24-7. The number of uh, cell phones uh, that are open and being used after midnight would shock most people. Uh, We are letting kids take the family car at age twelve. That's what that's what these phones are. If I'd said to my dad, "I'd like to take the car. I've watched you drive, so maybe I could do that," and it'd be like my dad saying, "Here are the keys. Try not to hit a hydrant, and I won't ask you who you were with or when you came home." My parents wouldn't have done that, but today we have perfected technology, so the kids are online a third of their life and they are being judged, they think, and actually sometimes they are every day. Um, Parents didn't grow up in that pressure cooker, and these are not young adults or children, and so they don't have the emotional gravitas to deal with it. They don't realize that every Facebook post is really a highlight reel of someone's life. They think it's real life, and their life doesn't match that, so they feel badly about themselves or young girls, especially in the culture we're living in, and social media. Uh, so many young girls have eating disorders because they don't match whatever the images they're told they should have. Um, and we don't spend much time talking anymore to families don't. I mean, there are probably great families who do, but we went out to dinner before COVID. My wife and I, family came in, mother, father, four daughters, Oldest daughter was 13 or 14. And my wife said, look at that family. And I looked over. They had just been seated. They were all on their individual devices. <laughs> and, and we left 15 minutes later. They hadn't spoken. And I wanted to stop and say to the father, hey, you know, they have takeout here. You, you don't have to pay a tip. The family was not talking. Uh, I learned a lot by going out to dinner sometimes with my parents. And they asked us questions, and my parents would talk to each other. I could learn a lot. Um, there was no—my parents were present for me to growing up, not because we scheduled it, because they were in the house at night, and we weren't distracted. Um, it, it, we've changed the culture, and some of that's good. Some of it is destructive on social emotional health of young people. And I just want parents to realize that we can fix it and change it. And we're never going to get rid of technology. And I'm not anti-tech. I have an iPhone and iPad. But I grew up in a world that was eyeball to eyeball. So I developed my social-emotional health that way. These kids aren't getting that opportunity. And the parents need to realize that. Mm.
1: So, John, what does the future hold for, for John Broderick? What do, what do you see as your future for, is it is it to continue? Is the, as you said, this is your mission, this is your work. Um, what does the future hold for you?
0: I hope it allows me to continue to do what I'm doing. Uh, the work I've been doing, through and I mean this you I've had some amazing opportunities in my lifetime, and I'm grateful for them. I was Chief Justice of our Supreme Court. I was Dean of the Law School at UNH. I have a great job at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, but... What I've been doing the last six years is literally the most important work of my life. And uh, I don't often wish I were younger. My left knee wishes I were younger, but I don't often wish I was younger. But I do on this topic, because if I realized 20 years ago what I know now, I would devote the rest of my life to it. And I mean that, because I know we can fix it. I know we can change it. And I'm just tired, as most people are, about reading about suicides of young people, especially. Uh, There's a school in Worcester uh, that's had seven or eight suicides since August. I I mean, that wasn't my life. Um, So I I really want to continue the work that I'm doing. I speak wherever I'm asked. Uh, I'm the cheapest date you'll ever have. I don't ask for anything. <laughs> uh, and the reason I don't is because drug medicine shock makes it possible for me to do it. And I've spoken now to all those kids. I speak to doctors and nurses. It, it doesn't matter, Drew. It's, it's an everywhere, everyday problem. And the minute you say to people, hey, I made mistakes, hey, I didn't see, they usually open up. And through that effort, if we get more people talking about it, they will then say, you can't get help for your son or daughter either. No, I can't. And you can't. And that family can't. Why is that? Why don't we fix that? That's what I want. I mean, what I hope someday is that there'll be a mental health system in the country. And this time in our history will look so funny and old fashioned. It will look like cancer did in my childhood where no one talked about it. Do you know what I'm saying? I know that day. I'm just doing everything I can. I'm only one person. Uh, I'm trying to hasten that day.
1: That's a great that's a great comparison between how, like you said, the taboo nature of cancer to to now mental health. Well, you know, John has hugged thousands of people. Here's to him hugging thousands more. And I hope everybody listening will get a chance to give John a hug one of these days. Parents, kids. John, where can people go if they want to learn more about you and your work, about the work that you're doing, anywhere they should go?
0: Well, they they can do a couple things. They could go to the Dartmouth Hitchcock website under REACT, R-E-A-C-T, or they could go to the national organization that was responsible for the five signs. Uh, That's changedirection.org. It's based in uh, D.C., and the woman who created the five signs was on Time Magazine's 100 list in 2012. She's a psychologist, amazing. So there's a lot of stuff on that website. There's stuff on the Arbita Trail website. And I'm happy, by the way, since I don't charge. People can exhale. If there's an opportunity to speak uh, at schools or at groups of any kind, uh, I'm happy to go and do that. Absolutely.
1: So, yeah, and we'll... Um... You know we'll maybe have to do another episode with you and jeff together jeff levin who's been on the show but um but yeah and, and you can always reach john through the show through me through reaching out so uh john thank you so much for coming on it's been a uh, it's been a huge honor
0: Drew, thank you for having me on it's an important topic not because i'm doing it,
1: but because it's an important topic absolutely Thank you for listening to the Drew Perlman Show. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. In the words of Mark Twain, 20 years from now, you will be more disappointed by the things you didn't do than the things you did do. So throw off the bow lines, sail away from the safe harbor, and catch the trade winds in your sails. Explore, dream, discover, and stay well, everyone.